Welcome to Takeaway Science, another in the series of short podcasts produced by Blast at the Open University. This particular podcast comprises three short audio sequences. Later in the podcast, Susan Conway chats with a group of Open University scientists about life on Mars and our chances of discovering it. We also chat with Vic Oliver of Bath University about the new technology of 3D printers. But first, Blast's David Smith went to this year's Royal Society Summer Exhibition, where he caught up with two epidemiologists from Cambridge University, Professor Chris Gilligan from the Institute for Animal Health and Dr Ralph de Simone, a postdoctoral research associate. Here's David Smith. Explain more about your research. We use mathematical models to try and understand how diseases spread so that we can use that knowledge, the knowledge we gain by understanding how diseases spread, to actually control them better. So, how do we design more efficient control strategies? So, ones that work, because um, obviously there's constrained resources, so you need to know how much. For example, how much effort do you put into surveillance, so looking for the disease in the first place, and how much do you actually then allocate to um, controlling the fighting the, the disease? So do you look for it, spend lots looking for it, but then not having very much to actually control it once you know where it is? Or do you spend lots, spend not very much finding out where it is, and then but have lots in reserve to control for it, but obviously you don't necessarily know then where it, where it actually is at the time. So kind of looking at that type of question. I'm at the Institute for Animal Health and look at primarily animal diseases. And I mean, the focus for our, of, of my work is looking at things like foot and mouth disease, um, blue tongue, um, and scraping. So mostly diseases which are exotic to the UK, so not actually here at the moment, but have devast- can have devastating consequences when they do arrive. For example, foot and mouth disease when it came in 2001 obviously had sort of a shattering impact both on the animal population but also on the, the rural economy. And blue tongue, which arrived for the first, ca- first time in 2007 um, in the UK, which is, has potential to devastate the national, national sheep flock and imposes quite severe trade restrictions um, for, so it's, it's important that we can actually control, control this disease as soon as we can. This seems to be quite a specialised area of research. How did you get involved? Um, actually, it was uh, through personal connections. I knew someone that knew someone. Uh, I was working in biological physics, so using stochastic processes. You know, how does uh, randomness affect biological systems? And uh, Epidemics are inherently random. They usually start with a small introduction, uh, one infected thing that spreads uh, to numerous, and those beginnings of epidemics are inherently random. If that one individual dies or uh, uh, recovers before he passes on, then the epidemic won't even take off. So when you have small numbers, it's really important to understand how random effects happen. So I'm trying to bring my specialty to epidemiology. And one of our collaborators uh, works on the population genetics of, uh, was it take-all in wheat, right? So uh, take-all disease in wheat, uh, this is a disease that kills whole fields of wheat, hence the name. Uh, and they found that there are two different strains of take-all that kind of coexist, and they think that they uh, came from one strain. So there might be a speciation event that happened. So it was one disease, and then there are two. And so they're trying to study you know, how that's possible, what, you know, what could be in the ecology of the fields and harvesting cycles that would make it split into two different diseases. But they're not here right now. So. <laughs> 
can you, if you look five years into the future, how do you see your field developing? I mean, I mean part of it would be sort of being able to take data in real time and then try and predict forward what, so once an outbreak has occurred, um, how do you sort of take the data of the situation as it is now and use that to try and predict forward um, so you can try and identify which farms you need to target you control that whether you I mean for example if you vaccinated whether you could vaccinate an area that isn't infected yet but use that vaccinated barrier to then try and stop um, infection and also one of the one of the big big things that will be coming in the future is the impact of climate change on disease I and mean, we know um, for example blue tongue that's been spreading far further north since the mid-1990s, largely under the influence of climate change, which has expanded the range of the vector, so the biting midge that transmits the infection. Um, so we know that it can happen there, and likely in the future with further climate change, it's going to allow different diseases to come into the, firstly, well, probably firstly into Europe, but then ultimately spreading further north. So that's going to sort of potentially, what's current, what are currently exotic diseases will potentially become endemic ones. Um, which obviously you've got a complete a population which has never experienced the disease, so it's going to be uh, potentially, dev potentially devastating again. David Smith there, talking with Professor Chris Gilligan and Dr Ralph de Simone from Cambridge University. Well, if that's whetted your appetite for epidemiology, you might want to take a look at the Open University's short science course, Chance, Risk and Health which aims to introduce you, from scratch, to some of the main ideas of modern statistics in the context of important health issues. The course will show you, for instance, how statistics can shed considerable light on such topics as the controversy surrounding the MMR vaccine and the link between smoking and cancer. To learn more about this course, or any other OU course for that matter, log on to WW3, that's the numeral 3, www.open.ac.uk forward slash study and follow the links. The second sequence in this Takeaway Science podcast features Open University research student Susan Conway chatting about life on Mars, and I don't mean the BBC TV series, with three of her fellow OU researchers. Charles Kakel, who's Professor of Geomicrobiology in the Planetary and Space Sciences Research Institute... Matthew Baum from the Department of Earth and Environmental Sciences, and from the Department of Physics and Astronomy, Stephen Lewis. Over to Susan Conway. Let's imagine you've just landed. What might be around? Well, hopefully not too many rocks, because if you land a spacecraft on Mars, you don't want to land somewhere dangerous. But the best way to describe it would be something that looks a bit like the Arizona desert but without any plants or perhaps the high Antarctic desert but fewer people would have been there so sand, rocks Now Stephen, uh, would you be able to give us an idea of what kind of weather conditions we might have what, the, what you might see if you looked into the sky on this imaginary trip to Mars? The Martian sky would probably appear quite murky which um, reached the great altitudes the dust is very fine, it's not like sand it's more like smoke. Um, typically, on a fairly clear day, if you were near the equator, it would, the Martian climate would be very like a desert on Earth. Um, it would be very hot during the day. Um, well, it might even reach temperatures well above freezing point near the surface. 
at night it would be incredibly cold, so it would be a huge difference, maybe 100 degrees difference. The atmospheric pressure is very much lower, it's rather like if you were about 10 miles up in the Earth's atmosphere, um, so about 6 millibars, um, about a hundredth of the Earth's atmosphere. So the air would be very thin? The air would be very thin, and um, the wind, although the winds can be quite strong, you wouldn't actually feel the winds pushing you very much because the, air, the density of the air is so low. So from what Stephen and, and Matt have been saying, Charles, it doesn't sound like a very friendly environment. And we know there's no oxygen on Mars. So how would life be able to survive? I mean, as a microbiologist, how, what sort of niches would life need to be in to survive on Mars? It, it's right that the surface of Mars is a very stark and apparently dead environment. Um, as Matt and Steve explained, you land on the surface of Mars. But in fact, uh, many of the polar deserts on the Earth also look very stark and dead but they harbour a huge amount of life. And a lot of it is underground. Uh, it's underground where there may be some liquid water, perhaps some nutrients, and some geochemical activity to turn things over to create a constant supply of nutrients for life. And that's where you'd really want to look uh, on Mars, is probably to drill into the subsurface. And that would also cause a problem to have life on the surface, wouldn't it, the thin atmosphere? The, the problem is that the pressure on the surface of Mars in most places is at the triple point of water or around that. What that means is that water, instead of going from ice to liquid to gas, tends to go directly from uh, ice into vapour and mm -hmm. disappear into the atmosphere. And life needs liquid water, and that's the problem in most places on the surface of Mars. Uh, and in the deep subsurface, there may be regions where you could have stable liquid okay. water. So what about the uh, radiation coming in from the sun? If we don't have very much of an atmosphere, would the, the radiation coming in from the sun be a problem for microbes? Well, people always talk about radiation killing off everything on Mars and being a real problem. It's a problem if you're actually on the surface exposed to the full uh, solar radiation, but it only takes a few microns, even just a millimetre of, of Martian soil to protect you from ultraviolet radiation. And the levels of cosmic radiation on the surface of Mars we know uh, can be tolerated by some microbes on the Earth. So as long as you're under a few... Uh, you know, a few millimetres, say, of Martian soil, mm -hmm. you're protected from most of the problem of radiation. Okay, thank you for that. Susan Conway there, talking with Open University researchers Charles Kakel, Matthew Baum and Stephen Lewis. Well, if you've ever wondered about where the solar system came from and how it evolved how and why life arose on Earth and whether there's intelligent life elsewhere in the solar system or beyond, then the OU's second-level course, Planetary Science and the Search for Life, may be the course for you, because these are just some of the questions that this course addresses. The course also looks at the exploration of the solar system by spacecraft, planetary processes such as volcanism and impacts, the structure of planets and their atmospheres, and asteroids, comets and meteorites. Students taking the course Planetary Science and the Search for Life make extensive use of web-based resources and electronic conferencing. And, as it's a second-level course, some previous science knowledge is assumed. For more details of this course and other Open University courses, log on to www3, that's the numeral 3 again, www.open.ac.uk forward slash study. The third and final sequence in this Takeaway Science podcast features a fascinating interview about 3D printers. Yes, that's 3D printers, with Vic Oliver from Bath University. 
Blast's David Smith caught up with Vic at a very noisy Cheltenham Science Festival. G'day. And we were looking at your rep map. Um, would you explain it more to our audience? Yes, uh, if they're familiar with uh, 3D printers, um, it's, a, it's basically an open source 3D printer. So it's a machine that makes things um, in three dimensions from a variety of plastics. And we prefer to go with environmentally friendly ones, obviously. It's, um, it does things in layers. If, if, you, if you picture a glue gun on the end of a robot arm, you've got the general idea. It lays down uh, an object in layers in molten plastic, and then it drops the platform down, and it then does another uh, slice of the object as a layer of plastic. Um, and it, in that way, it builds the uh, object up from the bottom up. Uh, what sort of uses can you see the RepRap being? Um, you were talking about it self-replicating? Yes, it is. Um, that, that aspect, um, strange, strangely, isn't the one that seems to light up the public imagination. They're, they're uh, keener on seeing it producing everyday objects. But uh, for the scienti- those of a scientific bent, um, it does uh, reproduce its own parts. And then you can uh, put them all together, build another machine. So it's like... Um, a large version of the nanobot in people's imagination. Yes, or a a von Neumann machine, but it is a practical device rather than a theoretical one. So we don't bother making things like nuts and bolts um, because you can go to B&Q and buy those uh, for for not very many pennies. Uh, But all the brackets that hold everything together and hold all the motors in the right place and stuff like that, uh, they're they're tricky to make and tricky to buy, so um, we use the 3D fabricator to make them and uh, that's very good with complex pieces. And do you think people can make these at home? Is it easy to build and use? Yes, if you can, if you can stick a PC together from sort of motherboard and case, then you've probably got enough skills to, to build your RepRap at home. Uh, we've actually set up a foundation, the RepRap Research Foundation. It's a, a non-profit to help people to uh, put the uh, to get all the parts they need to put one together. And can we use any sort of novelty materials? Chocolate, for example? Oh, chocolate is one I'm, I'm itching to see. In theory, you can. Uh, we, we have a design for a paste extruder. Um, we tried icing. Um, we also tried drying icing with a hairdryer, which doesn't work very well. It just turns into syrup. Um, but uh, we tend to use uh, uh, polylactic acid, which is a, a bio-originated plastic. Um, it's biodegradable, melts at just over 100 Celsius. Uh, or... Um, uh, polycaprolactone, which is sold in Maplin as uh, polymorph. Uh, it melts at about 60 Celsius and it's great fun to play with. Uh, you can get it in luminous as well, so you can print your own glow stars. It's quite fun. And what do you see this technology um, changing the world? Well, what we've, what we've done is we've created a tool which can evolve to do what people uh, want, uh, whatever want, people want it to do. We can't determine you know, what people want this device to make. Um, so we have made the design free and open and all the tools that you need to modify it to be free and open uh, so that people can take this uh, RepRap and put it into, uh, well, whatever environment they're in and, and make it work. So it could do... be used in the middle of a desert to outer space? In, indeed. Um, that's actually how I, I got into it. But, um, yes, uh, the more... Uh, the, the more remote the environment, obviously, the handier it is for you to be able to make your own bits and pieces. As long as you have the plastic put into it. Yes, well, we, we have actually used uh, polylactic acid because people can uh, make it from starch. 
um, so you can you can grow your own plastic in effect. What would you say to get people interested? This project is great because basically it allows you to make what you want. Um, so if you, you go along to uh, reprap.org, that's R-E-P-R-A-P.org, and literally everything that uh, you, you want to build that project is up there on that site. And it covers a whole range of things um, from sort of simple mechanics like a big Meccano set um, to the electronics to the material science of the different plastics. Uh, and there's really something in there for everybody of a scientific bent. Uh, and it's great for schools. Um, in fact, we're uh, undergoing negotiations to uh, provide a training course for teachers uh, where the teacher would go along uh, to the course uh, build themselves a rep wrap and understand the principles of, of making it and then go back to their school with a kit and put it together with the children. And is there any issues, like legal issues, with copyright with 3D printers? Well, copy, copyright is, is one thing. Um, for example, if you were to um, start producing models of a certain mouse-like mouse character, well known as the... You might indeed attract the attention of, of copyright lawyers. Um, but for items that are patented in uh, this country at, at least and in many other parts of the free world, you are allowed to make patented objects for your own use, uh, provided that you uh, don't sell them or sell goods or services based on them. Thank you very much. Thank you. Cheers. David Smith there talking with Bath University's Vic Oliver. Well, if you enjoyed that, Check out the Open University course, Engineering in the Future, which offers an introduction to engineering principles as they're applied in modern engineering practice. This course will also teach you general skills, such as numeracy, critical reading and analysis, writing reports and essays, problem solving and learning at a distance. You'll also look at the historical development of engineering, how it's practised today and future engineering trends. You can find out more details on www.open.ac.uk forward slash study. Well, that's the end of this particular podcast brought to you by Blast at the Open University. Uh, for further podcasts in this Takeaway Science series, revisit the Open University Science Faculty website at www.open.ac.uk forward slash science. And if you want to find out more about some of the science outreach work carried out by the OU, visit the BLAST webpages at blast.open.ac.uk. Anyway, that's all for now. So from me, Mike Bullivant, adios amigos.